Welcome back to On the Record on News Talk. It's Gavin Riley here filling in for Kieran this Sunday. Now, one of Irish sports' most curious stories concerns the massive explosion of basketball here in the 1980s when six foot eight Americans began to ply their trade in Ireland before packed stadiums all across the country. Uh, the story has inspired a book hanging from the rafters, and in the words of one commentator, they made the parish halls of Ireland sexy. Uh, but how did it build so quickly, and how did it all come crashing down? Well, for another edition of Hidden Histories, we're joined as ever by Donald Fallon for another edition. Good afternoon, Donald. Good How are you? Here. Hanging from the rafters. That's a great title it's for a book. It's a fabulous it? title. Second only to the, the book about the Irish show band scene, which is called Send Them Home Sweating. I think it's a, <laughs> the, the finest book title in Irish history. Uh, it's, uh, this is a close second. Completely open to interpretation as well. Um, <laughs> basketball brings to mind your NBAs, your Michael Jordans, your LeBron Jameses, your Space Jams. It doesn't yeah, bring to mind yeah. 1970s. Forget Ireland. LeBron James and Shaquille O'Neal. This story today is much closer to home. And I, I really do think this is one of the more peculiar pages. Uh, in the long book of Irish sports history. And I suppose, just how did basketball explode in popularity in Ireland in the 80s? And what, if anything, is the legacy of that today? Because it's quite amazing, you know, if you if you read history backwards, as, as we all tend to do, like, basketball today is not an enormous sport in Ireland. You know, no. it's still, it still has its disciples. They have a magnificent national stadium. But you wouldn't get the impression today at a basketball match that in the 1980s, this was the sport of sports in Ireland. And this is, in some ways, an international story as well, because it was really the presence of these larger-than-life American, literally larger-than-life American players that drew massive crowds to games in Dublin, Cork, Belfast, and mm. other cities right across the island of Ireland. But the story opens up in 1979, which was a remarkable year for Ireland. You know, we think about 79, we think about the visit of the Pope. Yeah. Hockey is prime as Taoiseach yeah. strikes everywhere. But the, the, uh, a this, time of it's, political turbulence. It's a story that does have one central character to it, though, isn't it? That there is kind of one person, the one a, larger than life person a, who kickstarted all this. Wonderful larger than life character, Paddy O'Connor, who only died earlier this year. He died back in May in Las Vegas. Uh, he was a basketball player in Killarney with St. Vincent's Club. And he was the man who had the idea. He recognised the potential of bringing American players to compete in Irish basketball. Because when you think about it, I mean, most young American basketball players, even brilliantly talented players, you could be the best player on your college team and never make it to the NBA. You could be in a basketball scholarship scheme in a leading university and never make it to the NBA. Mm, mm. So the talent pool in America is absolutely enormous. And I think he he realised this. And the argument that he made was that the skills of the Americans and perhaps even the novelty of their presence here would lead to increased attendances and interest in the sport. And that kind of logic, when you think about it, that's the same logic that saw American soccer teams in the 1970s you know, signing up British talents yeah. as they neared the it's, end but of It's careers. almost what they're doing right now as well with the MLS, that you just take whatever big European star there is and just get them when they don't have yeah, any other income anywhere else. I think they call it the shop window effect. You, know, you believe yeah. that if you, if you put something uh, exotic and foreign, yeah. centre stage, people will come and see it. And, and the, O'Connor was the man who had that great idea. And these people truly were exotic and foreign because <laughs> they, they, were, looked, they looked quite a bit they, different to the, the regular pundit down in Killarney. The natives of Killarney. The first two Americans, Greg, Greg Hugley and and Cornell Benford were giants of men. I mean, they were both over six foot five. There's a great article about them by, by Wishy Fogarty, a, a legend of Radio Kerry. And he recounts that they were the talk of the town, I mean, Killarney Town. They were, in my opinion, the very first black people to actually live in the town. And as they strolled around the streets, people stood and stared. Uh, they came from Quincy College and they just caused this massive sensation. Uh, Tony Andre as well, he, he comes later on. And in the documentary Hanging from the Rafters, he tells this great story about a, a, a young girl in, in Kerry. He says, there's a little girl and she walks up and rubs her finger across my skin. She looked at her finger and said, it doesn't come off. I didn't take offence. I just said, this is my colour. And just by talking to her, it opened her eyes up. So mm. these lads are, 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 are totally, totally from, yeah. from the, the other world. No, no doubt, though, it would have had a significant effect, not only in how the Killarney team was performing on the court, but like circumstances like that, it must have had a fairly uh, significant Saint, Saint impact went off court. 
into overdrive. I mean, there's an immediate effect there that they won the National League title and Championship title 79-1980 season. And the crowds began to come. And you had crowds of 800 people, sometimes hovering towards 1,000 people attending their games in parish halls, mm. which are very respectable numbers, you know, and multiples of what was there before. And unsurprisingly, I think other teams look at what St. Vincent's have done and they began looking stateside mm. as well. Yeah, and of course, I mean, it, it, it did help to, to kind of manufacture a lot of rivalries Absolutely. as well. Because, um, so suddenly then you have Americans on rival sides and it kind of just adds to that whole is, sense of narrative of drama. And what is that. sport without rivalry? It's absolutely nothing. Every sport needs rivalry. You know, be it Shamrock Rovers and Bowes in soccer, be it Dublin and Kerry, you know, in the days mm. of Kevin Heffernan and Gaelic football. Uh, sport without rivalry is nothing. And basketball had that in the 80s. The, the Neptunes and the Demons. The Neptunes in Cork were established in the 1940s, 1948. They're the oldest and most successful basketball club here. But they kind of emerged in the 80s as, as the boys to beat. Uh, and they won an astonishing seven championships mm. between 1983 and 1991. A big investment. You know, financial backers are looking at this game going, right, this is what the kids are into now. We'll, we'll play money into this. And American players, Terry Strickland was their great, uh, another Amer- great American star. So Cork became the kind of epicenter uh, of Irish basketball. But the game also had its disciples in Dublin and in Belfast. Yeah, and particularly Belfast. Belfast, you know, that we sometimes we forget that it was an, an All-Ireland League and it remains an mm. All-Ireland League. But that Belfast really was the second city at the time, wasn't it? In yeah, terms and, of sporting and terms. I think Belfast has always been unique in terms of sport because sports that are, you know, are not identified to either tribe mm. have always been broadly popular in Belfast. So ice hockey has flourished there. And even today, ice hockey is quite yes, popular yeah. uh, in Belfast. And, and basketball was another sport that was neither green nor orange. You know, so it did quite well. Bobby Sands uh, had actually been a, a young basketball player with Star to Sea as a young lad uh, in the 1970s. So young people from both communities, it was they mingled in basketball in the 1960s, 70s and into the 80s. And up there you had Sporting Belfast. They were a, a brilliant team. They had their own American marvel. Dan Trant and his story is very sad actually one of the newspapers here when they did an article a few years ago uh, looking at where these American basketball players in Ireland ended up Dan Trant they discovered actually lost his life in the 9-11 terrorist attack at the World Trade Centre oh he worked for Cantor Fitzgerald it's a very sad end to his story St Gals were the, the West Belfast club they had this great player from Baltimore called Dave Hopla and he Again, later said no, not a native name not, not a native <laughs> no, Irish no. name no you wouldn't find an Irish grandmother for him no. you know, but he later recounted we knew where Belfast was because it was always on the news and in the papers but it was all negative with the hunger strikes going on the troubles but it didn't bother me in the slightest I felt safer in Belfast than I did on the streets of Baltimore <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he came over which would be news to anyone who's seen the wire but there you go Yeah, <laughs> he came over for five months he said he played with Aaron for five months and he ultimately stayed here for, for three years and that was very typical mm for these American basketball players. I think they, the, the sense of stardom that came with playing in the Irish League was, yeah. was, was very real. Many of them fell in love with the Irish way of life, in Dave's case, the public houses. Uh, and some <laughs> fell in love with Irish women. You know, And his memories of the game in Belfast are fantastic. He said it was standing room only. You could barely throw the ball in from the baseline. It was yeah. magical. And the same thing when we would go down and play in Dublin or Cork. And it was always jam-packed in Killarney. It was only a small place. They must have shut the town down when we played. You can understand the, the, the attraction for someone who's coming over who might not have, have been on the cusp of making it and even if it is only a, a small league and it's not ah, the elite look. the idea of having little rammed halls a, like that a star in a small pool is still a star absolutely uh, but we were talking about you know the big cities and Belfast was the second city but you were think, you'd think for any Irish sport that if you're having a conversation around two cities that Dublin mm. would be one of the two cities but, but Cork it's was Cork. the city that dominated Cork. why um, was that? Ciarán Shannon who, who wrote this magnificent book I mean he, he so beautifully talks about why Cork did so well and he, he argues that in Cork 
they played a different game. And by the 80s, they felt the difference was why they were winning leagues and press attention. They even had a term for it, dive on glass basketball. In Dublin, if the ball broke loose on the ground, the kid would go over and try and pick it up. In Cork, a kid would run over and dive on glass to get there first. Hunger, second city paranoia, scrappy knees syndrome, call that it what actually, you like. That, that reminds me a little bit, actually, Kieran Cuddy would be very proud of me for saying this. Brian Cody always said that the difference between Kilkenny teams and other teams, that other people said, oh, we'd, we'd die for a victory, and the Kilkenny lads were, no, we would kill for a victory. <laughs> and that's the difference. Kieran would love that. Uh, anyway, I'm sure, though, there were those who actually, you know, the, the sporting purists among us, who probably oh, yeah. bemoaned the rise of this new, uh, you know, glamorous, you know, made for TV sport. Yeah, and if you'd been ploughing a field for a long, long time, you know, it must have been very, very frustrating to look at this immediate overnight success story and there was TV cameras massive financial sponsorship and in America there was a lot of attention on this too because you know for Irish American entrepreneurs this was like a dream come true I mean Mm. this was the chance to support the rise of a game you loved in the old country but regional newspapers kind of bemoaned the rise of the game and and the the death of the GAA's Rule 27 which famously went out in the 1970s Mm. that was the ban on the playing and even the the watching of foreign games by GAA members you had the famous vigilance committee who would show up at soccer matches and make sure there were no GAA players Mm. there you know and, and one region paper in the West talks about how the youngsters are increasingly drawn to basketball and away from the native sport. So, you know, many people were frustrated by the overnight success uh, of basketball. Yeah, but ultimately though, it did all grind to a halt and ultimately the governing body did decide to put a, a stop to this this massive, uh, you know, this exodus of Americans coming over here to ply their trade. What's amazing about this story, how quickly basketball rises in Ireland is only matched by how quickly it collapses. Because the, the barriers are internal and in one case. The governing body decided there should be, quote, one Category B player per team in all divisions. And in plain English, that basically meant one Yank per team. Yeah. And I think the logic of this was that if you limited every club to one American, you'd get the promotion of Irish players and you'd level the playing field. Because there were clubs in, in the West in particular that just mm. couldn't afford to bring in American players. You know, they didn't yeah. have the same hard dosh But I suppose, as, say, clubs by, by the same token, there was probably the danger that in the bigger, more successful clubs that in fact they were so swamped with American mm. talent that it was very difficult for a native player to get a look yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. So this is the, the, this is the idea of levelling the playing field. Unfortunately, what it does is it removes one of the great draws for punters. Yeah. I think, you know, the chance to see these Americans was a big, big draw. So the, the following decade, the 90s, brings this absolutely rapid decline. But if you look at the national, it's amazing that there is a national stadium for basketball. Yeah. Because think how many great sports in Ireland don't have national stadiums, you mm. know, and are still aspiring towards decent facilities and how many great sports in Ireland have to share their stadiums. Yeah. So, I mean, it says something about how, how significant basketball was for that brief moment in time that they have such an extraordinary stadium. Yeah, but it, it, again, though, the, this, the sport has never been back to that zenith, even to the point where up till a couple of years ago, in fact, we had to wind down the national team yes. for a couple of years because yes. we couldn't afford to run it. And basketball is lucrative stuff. You know, it's never been more lucrative than it is at the moment. Uh, Forbes recently said that in the NBA, the average team is worth a record 1.65 billion 22% more than last year and every team is worth at least a billion dollars for the mm. first time. There, so. there must still be though some some of the little seeds that were planted there. There must yeah. be some little undercurrent of culture that was enriched by that whole glory days. There is. And on occasion, on occasion, the Neptunes and the like can still draw those big crowds, the finals in the stadium. Uh, and Paddy O'Connor, I mean, we should really end with him. He only died recently in, in, in Vegas, but he always retained the great gras for home and for, for basketball. And Kieran Shannon wrote of his, his last encounter with him a few a few years ago when he threatened to do it all again. He said, I tell you, if I was back home now, I'd put an Irish team into Europe. We'd pay the guys, including Irish kids, if they were up to the standard and bring in the likes of Real Madrid. What's the biggest indoor stadium in Ireland, the Tree Arena? I guarantee you I'd fill that thing tomorrow morning. 
And wasn't it good to have a dream? Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. Donald, thank you very much. Donald Fallon, the author of the Come Here To Me blog and book, uh, Volume 2. Uh, that is all we have time for on the show today. A uh, big thank you to the production team, Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan. Jojo Cardoza was on sound. Uh, Kieran Cuddy is back next week. Off the ball is on the way. Uh, Donald, did you know today is a holy day of obligation? September the 23rd. I didn't know that. It's the boss's birthday. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen is 69 years old today. And to mark that and to mark the glory days of Irish basketball, here is a little bit of the boss. Uh, I'm Gavin Riley. Thanks very much for listening.